0: People would rather do something that's easier and that is protest on Australia Day, shout racism, shout white privilege, get upset over coon cheese or gollywogs rather than getting your hands dirty and work in these, these places and give them the opportunities that you and I and the Loud Voices take for granted.
1: Welcome to another Water Cooler Conversation from the Menzies Research Centre. My name is Nick Cater, I'm Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre. And uh, in the first of two Water Cooler Conversations, I want to try and unravel the meaning and purpose of Australia Day, uh, its future, and what the perennial discussion and argument around it says about us as a nation. Anthony Dillon is an academic, a commentator on Indigenous Affairs, he believes that the current popular ideologies that portray Indigenous people merely as victims of history and white Australia should be challenged. And he says on his website he identifies both as Aboriginal and Australian. I'm going to ask you about that, Anthony. Welcome, first of all, to the podcast. Thanks, Nick. Aboriginal and Australian, it seems uncontroversial. To some of us, uh, I suppose if I wanted to, I could identify as English and Australian, although I'd rather just call myself Australian these days. But but that is a controversial thing to say in some circles, isn't it?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, even more controversial is to say I'm part Aboriginal, which I am. I'm just saying that I have Aboriginal ancestry from my father and English ancestry from my mother, and both those ancestries make up who I am. So uh, just that's who I am.
1: Tell me about your, your background, how you... You grew up, your father, I think, was a policeman, Mm -hmm. where you grew up, and your first experience of, I suppose, thinking, were you Aboriginal or Australian or both?
0: Well, first of all, you're right in saying Dad was a policeman. He was also, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, won the Senior Queensland Australian of the Year Award, so I thought I'd throw that in. Um, So growing up, I had a normal uh, upbringing, and, you know, the son of a police officer, and... You know, culture was never the defining feature. Love was more the defining feature in my family, both from Dad's family, the Aboriginal family, and Mum's family, the non-Aboriginal family. Um, And, you know, there were slight differences between them, but just being a good person, loving, being loved, that was what my childhood was about. Um, And recognising both the ancestries, and most importantly not seeing one as better or more defining than the other
1: and you grew up in queensland whereabouts
0: brisbane that's my home i was born in north queensland but was only there for 18 months or something but brisbane's my home my heart's in brisbane my body's down here in sydney and has been for 17 years
1: and what was your experience at school i mean you 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 had friends both aboriginal and non-aboriginal I suppose. no
0: at school no uh no aboriginal friends uh certainly at school you know, I, in primary school at least, uh, I'm now 55, so you can do the maths on that, uh, I would have been the blackest kid, my sister and I would have been the blackest kid at primary school, um, and then in high school things started to get a little bit more multicultural, uh, but I just got on with the kids, you know, I was a joker, um, and you know, quite popular, funny guy, uh, and, and worked hard too, uh, and my parents could see that I worked hard academically, so they they made every opportunity available for me without being too pushy but just giving me that opportunity of pursuing you know higher education.
1: Today of course this seems a very polarized uh, concept you know people are either the whole idea of uh, white Australia versus black Australia it seems to have rigidified in certainly in, in recent years since I've been here I mean I think i my earliest experiences in Australia more than 30 years ago was that people were quite relaxed about it, but now it's become, uh, well, I guess identity politics makes it important, doesn't it? It becomes part of your political persona. Yeah.
0: Mm. It's, you know, it's interesting. We can look at, what, 50 different genders or something, but when it comes to Aboriginal status here in Australia, you're, according to the identity politics police, you're either Aboriginal or you're not well, sorry, I'm part Aboriginal.
1: So to Australia Day, and every year it seems to get a little bit more willing. The argument over Australia Day, and um, you know the insistence from some that this is in fact Invasion Day. We should call it Invasion Day. We should change the day. It should be a day of mourning, etc., etc., etc. What are your feelings about that?
0: Okay, look. First of all, if the day does get changed, the date, I won't be opposing it. I won't support it, but I'm not going to oppose it. But I really think it should be left alone. Um, and you know the arguments used for changing it aren't very good arguments. I know of nobody who is celebrating any form of genocide on that day. They mostly just celebrate that it's, you know, Australia is a great country to live in. Uh, as imperfect as what it is, it's still a great country to live in. We see each other as mates and family, and it's, you know, it's a great day for remembering that, celebrating that, having fun, and yes, if you want to reflect upon the beginnings of this nation, both the good, the bad, and and the ugly, that's fine, reflect upon it, uh, if that's what you want to do, but don't misrepresent the day as some sort of celebration of something that was bad. And there's certainly plenty of Aboriginal people who just get on with that day and have a, a great day.
1: If it has any meaning at all to people, it seems to be much more about fellowship and um, getting together with friends and just being part of something bigger than yourself and your family. I, I don't actually see too many people dressing up as Captain Arthur Phillip or anything like that. You know, It's just not the way we think of it. So, so why is it you think there's so many Aboriginal people no, first of all, do it, the, the Aboriginal community, the Indigenous voices who say that this is a problem, first of all, do you, in your experience, how big a part of the Indigenous population would they represent?
0: Um, well, a number's probably not big, but in voice and volume, you know, volume of voice and a bit of influence. Um, there's certainly the, the noisy wheel, I think and they're certainly privileged and there's nothing wrong with having privilege by the way um you know i was born into privilege my parents weren't but i was and privilege is fine and if you do have privilege you should use it for something good so i find it amazing that you've got these privileged loud voices claiming that australia day is oppressive etc etc and it's a bit of a joke when you see some of them um you know let's Let's be upfront about it. They're very pale-skinned, claiming to be...
1: <laughs> you can say that, of course. I can't. <laughs>
0: yeah. um, I, mean, yeah, yeah. I may meet with an accident after this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, you know, they're claiming to be victimised and oppressed because of Australia Day and generally white Australia. Um, so they've got this voice, and they could be using it for so much better, some, you know, some yeah. good things. So, uh, ironically, here they are, quite privileged, using their platform... To say that they're oppressed so how ridiculous is that you know what they should be doing is talking about their brothers and sisters who are living you know often not always but often in remote parts of Australia who uh, don't have what we take for granted you know shelter fresh food etc etc they should be speaking on behalf of them about having something good for them
1: yeah I often think we need to be more more focused more specific you know when we talk about as we often do closing the gap aboriginal disadvantage and so forth we are referring almost entirely it seems to me to people in rural and remote australia not not people in the cities who who you know generally tend to live pretty similar lives to their neighbors this isn't talked about enough that that we are talking about something quite different to what you see around the city Sydney, Adelaide, we're talking about genuine, genuine serious social, economic, health disadvantage, educational disadvantage. I just wonder how many people who have such a loud opinion on this ever actually have been out to some of these places and and seen what it's like.
0: I wonder too, and I doubt very much if they have, and certainly uh, you may remember a couple of years ago... Carrie ann Kennelly got in trouble for making a comment, you know, similar saying, you know, have these people been out to these places? And, you know, she certainly wasn't saying that every one of these communities is rife with um, dysfunction and that, but she was saying that disproportionately they suffer a lot more. And so I think we should put the spotlight on on them. And you mentioned, I think, Closing the Gap a minute ago, I've always said uh, when closing the gap the the gap we really should be focusing on is not the gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous but rather the gap between disadvantaged Indigenous and advantaged Indigenous, people like myself um, and if you close that gap well then you will close the other, the gap, so I call that the within or the invisible gap helping those Indigenous people who are uh, live in terrible conditions, to have what I and those other loud voices we referred to a minute ago, having what we take for granted. And that's all I want to see. And I think, you know, use Australia Day to talk about that gap.
1: Yeah, I I, I found it very confronting the first time I went to, to an Aboriginal community in the Northern Territory. Uh, I spent some time there. It is very confronting, it's shocking to be honest Uh, when you look, when you see the contrast between the way people live in those communities and the way almost all of us do here in the cities. Mm. And I I, I just felt, I I, I feel, Anthony, that this is the biggest social challenge facing us as Australians. It beats anything else hands down.
0: Absolutely, and it's a difficult one to... Uh, face and address, so because it's difficult, people would rather do something that's easier and that is protest on Australia Day. Shout racism, shout white privilege, get upset over coon cheese or gollywogs, you know, just fabricating racism and and opposing it rather than getting your hands dirty and work in these, these places and give them the opportunities that you and I And the loud voices take for granted
1: yeah and i think the other thing that that we have to recognize is that uh, there have been terrible errors made policy errors uh, towards Aboriginal people that have made life much worse for them and many of those errors have been made in the last 40 years 50 years uh, under under progressive so-called progressive Thinking people who thought that they were improving a lot of Aboriginal people, um, but you can see how segregate essentially segregating them into communities that have no obvious economic base they're sort of way out there mm-hmm. in the middle of nowhere and 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 supporting those communities so they have to go on existing and 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 regardless of the lives people live. It was a huge policy mistake it was a huge social policy mistake. And if we're going to be apologising for anything, we should start by apologising for those things which happened in my lifetime. Do you agree?
0: Yeah, we can certainly look back and, you know, there's you know, often mistakes made in uh, lots of fields. Um, and, yes, acknowledge those um, and think, OK, well, now what have we learnt? And, and look at what we, we know works. You know, t- we've got a good idea these days pretty much what works. And again, if I come back to those loud voices we referred to, if you look at those loud voices, most of those people have a decent education. Most of those people live in a fairly safe environment where they have access to reasonably modern services. Um, So that's what works. We want to make sure that every Indigenous person has that sort of lifestyle available to them. You know, that will come about by focusing on the commonalities, recognising that the commonalities between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians far outweigh the differences. Um, So that should be the starting point. And then further down the track, if, you know, you want to talk about culture and, you know, specific communities where there may be a a need for some sort of special service, that's fine.
1: Starting with education, I always think, because if you... If 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 you can if you can give somebody an education, give them a a chance in life, then it can it can actually change life chances considerably.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, Northern Territory politician uh, Alison Anderson said, you know, education has set millions free, and it needs to set us free too. Uh, referring to people in Indigenous people in the ro- remote communities. But if you look at the um, you know, the leading Indigenous voices in the country, Uh, even those ones whom I may disagree with, um, they're basically well-educated people. You know, I don't need to name the names, um, but they've got a good, you know, minimum secondary education and some of them have tertiary education. Um, So that speaks for itself, you know, the, the power of education
1: this is uh, somewhat different to should we say the the prevailing approach in in aboriginal debate at the moment you know which sees the the opposite to you that puts a lot of emphasis on victimhood that puts a lot of emphasis on invasion dispossession and so forth do you find yourself uh, in heated argument with people who take that position or do they just tend to ignore you
0: Yeah, um, no, predictably, you do get a lot of people who are feisty and angry who will attack me on a personal level, you know, at least in the the social media. I I haven't had a a physical interaction yet, um, other than than verbal, so I've been fairly safe. But yes, they do like to fire insults at you. And most of it you, I I can and do ignore. I guess it, um, I, I guess I sometimes... The bait when it's I've got to be careful what I say. Some of those privileged people who have a profile out there, uh, sometimes it's, it's academics or what I call black academics, who are kind of untouchable in academia, uh, who have been able to build nice little empires for themselves. Uh, I'm not saying that every indigenous person in academia is like but that but. I certainly seem to attract uh, my fair share of those who, you know, see me as a trader and you know call me the classic coconut, brown on the outside. They do, do they? Yeah, yeah.
1: It's pretty brutal.
0: Oh, well, it's pretty weak. It <laughs> yeah. shows how weak their argument is. Um, so, yeah, when I get it uh, from them, and certainly in, in academia, there are, again, I'll be careful here in the indigenous space there are, there are things you can there are positions you can adopt which can make you really popular universities have their agendas as well i guess yeah. you know diversity and all that sort of thing but i have to say you know um certainly i've been supported by my immediate peers at australian catholic university but elsewhere in the social media and that sort of thing you get attacked by some of these privileged elite indigenous people
1: at the Menzies research center we're passionate believers in the power of ideas to change conversations and shape the future thanks to podcasts we've extended our circle of conversations to thousands of people every month podcasts are a great medium for think tanks listeners turn into podcasts for longer more sophisticated conversations than they can find on conventional media and we're very happy to provide them. And thanks to the generosity of our supporters, we can deliver them for free. You can show your support by subscribing to the Menzies Research Centre from just $10 a month. Go to menziesrc.org slash subscribe or click on the link in the podcast notes. Thinking about Australia Day, that. It seems to me we can't have a sensible conversation about Australia Day unless we can agree on the history. And I've been amazed to see the Bruce Pascoe's thesis, the Dark Emu book, which sets a completely unsubstantiated (coughs) story of Aboriginal development pre-settlement, vastly overstating the complexity of Aboriginal settlements, uh, their farming techniques and so forth. And yet that's become embraced and ABC TV tells that story to children. The books are available in the schools. They're, they're compulsory reading in some schools. I mean, this is hopeless, isn't it? I mean, we, let's, let's actually start by establishing the truth and, and not some, you know, view of how we would like Aboriginal society to have been. Yeah.
0: And look, even if it's impossible to establish the truth in the past at least be able to offer counter-arguments to what, say, Dark Emu did, and say, well, look, you know, here's some evidence which seems to be telling a different story. We're not dismissing yours immediately, but we're saying, please consider this, and, you know, if it's wrong, we're happy to hear that it's wrong, but let's not be too just too quick to embrace something because it supports a narrative, and certainly the way Dark Emu was presented, by the way, it was... Uh, I was disapp- disappointed to see that it was endorsed, highly endorsed, by some high-profile Indigenous people who I thought should know better. But they endorsed it nonetheless, which would have boosted sales of the book. But it was very clever and very seductive in the way it kind of, it, it come about, it, it presented itself as saying, we're going to demonstrate that Indigenous people have been Frowned upon terribly, and we're going to rescue them in our book, and we're going to show the whole world that how smart they really were. And so, yes, they they were smart, but not for the reason which uh, Dark Emu presents. So that you know, that was a kind of a beautiful love story for a lot of people. Where oh, they, you know, finally we're going to see how smart the indigenous people really were. Yes, they were smart. Again, not in the way Dark Emu would. Would have you believe. And, you know, there's, if you look at Sutton Walsh's excellent book, yeah. where, they, where they just point out how clever the Indigenous people were. And another book I, I read, I, the Aboriginal, by Roger Wardry, I think his name is, where he just took, you know, as a biography, autobiography of a full blood Aboriginal man. And he just talks about the way he and his family would read the land and that sort of thing. And just, you know, incredible.
1: That's right, it's so unnecessary, isn't it? I mean yeah. it, 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 it's almost as if Pasco and his followers think there's something shameful about being labelled as a hunter gatherer or
0: and so look, yes, where there was blame we we can say, look it was wrong, maybe through ignorance or whatever, that it was never taught how clever and sophisticated the hunter gatherer lifestyle was and these days, I'm privileged as a behavioral scientist i give lectures on cultural psychology and psychology regarding indigenous people and i always talk to them, uh, psychology students about intelligence and intelligence is always relates to a context okay so to say you're intelligent is meaningless unless, unless i say what context you're intelligent in it's a bit like saying what's the best move in chess you know it's it's that's a useless question unless you know what where the other pieces are so context is always very very important so when you look at Indigenous people, the context, the environment they lived in, they are, along with the Eskimos, the most intelligent people in the world. Or, you know, the traditional yeah. Aboriginal people were the most intelligent people in the world. And so, yes, I think it's a shame that that was never taught. You know, when I was a kid, and and also having said that, I don't think I've suffered. But it would have been nice if it was taught, and it'd be nice if it was. Today, I hope I'm doing my little bit by teaching uh, psychology students that Indigenous people, traditional Indigenous people, were very, very intelligent, given the conditions they had to live in.
1: Remarkably so, and and you know, all that is well established and, and broadly appreciated. And uh, but in the end, I think what what the common story here between pre-settlement and post-settlement Australia, pre-European settlement, post-European settlement is basically the determination to make Australia work it's not a easy country on the face of it you know when the British came here they recognized that New South Wales wasn't going to give up its its wealth easily you know it would require a lot of hard work as it did uh, and but but that's it I mean we, they are united in in being able to survive and thrive in fairly uh, Difficult terrain and difficult climate.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, uh, neither you nor I could last
1: uh, for, Oops, no. <laughs> for
0: for more than a week uh, in some of that harsh terrain.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Or understand it the way it seems to me that Indigenous people do in terms of their relationship to the land. As you say, reading the land, I find that absolutely... Yeah. Fascinating. And the idea of belonging, you know, having this is my, my land, this is my country, the older I get, the more I relate to that because I feel like that as a you know, myself that I feel much more related to country and place than I once did. So these are admirable things and I just wish we could come to some some way of celebrating this as a joint Australia yeah. achievement.
0: Yeah. So do I, so do I. Fortunately, uh, a lot are, but the loud voices, the squeaky wheel, sometimes drowns out um, the, the other people who are doing a, a great job of celebrating.
1: Yeah. Emmanuel Macron, the French President, said recently, you know, you're free to criticise our history, but first you have to learn it. <laughs> <laughs> I wish they would. Talking about well-meaning progressive policies that turned out very badly, I think we've got an issue with childcare and adoption with Indigenous people that there are very heavy restrictions on who can adopt or care for an Aboriginal child. They have to go with somebody else from the same community. And this causes, and problems, this causes problems, right? Problems.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, there's that preference, you know, it's, it's find them before finding anyone else. And, you know, if you can't find someone from the community, et cetera, et cetera, then settle for
1: which what? Which, which, which sounds. Well-meaning and kind, but it has some bad outcomes.
0: Officially well-meaning, but I just believe if a kid is removed from a dysfunctional home, yes, give those parents support and help and guidance, etc., but uh, the well-being of the kid comes first. And if the kid does need to be removed, place them in a loving home where the kid's going to be nurtured, full stop. Now, I didn't say anything about culture, race or colour there. Place the kid if they're an Aboriginal kid. Place them in a caring home with loving foster parents, um, black or white. You know, now if they're Aboriginal, that's fine. But that shouldn't be a condition um, for placing a kid uh, in a home that needs care and protection. You know, and this is always premised on again that vast difference and oh, Aboriginal people have this culture, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, most you know are just so much like you and I, and the kids—they're being removed from a dysfunctional culture where there was no Aboriginal culture, mm. and we just want to place them in a safe environment. Yeah. Um And yeah, and you know, if the kid is loved, cared for, educated, fed, um, and, you know, and they express an interest in culture, you know, usually they didn't (laughs) they weren't exposed to that culture beforehand but if they express an interest fine arrange for for the kid to be taught that and meet with elders or whoever but i think to make it a condition is just racist and ridiculous Mm. and i think most aussies would agree with you and i nick if we had a, a white kid who was in a dysfunctional home and he or she needed to be removed for their own protection, and they were placed with a non-white family, so long as that non- non-white family cared and loved the kid, would we really care? No. no. you know.
1: Absolutely, 100%. Yeah.
0: And so that's, that's all I want to see and say mm. for um, care and protection when it comes to Indigenous kids. Don't play the identity politics, the poisonous identity politics.
1: Let's talk about victimhood. Something you you rebel against, you know yeah. the idea that, that And I hope you do too. <laughs> I do indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, not because I think I don't feel some sympathy for people who have, you know, poor poor chances in life. Of course, you feel that. I mean, we we're, we're, as liberals, we're committed to equal opportunity, and and that's clearly something of great concern. But the 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 trouble it seems to me with victimhood is that uh, or, or the cult of victimhood. Is, is that it becomes very disempowering because people come to think, well, there's nothing much they can do to change their life for better or ill. Yeah. Um, They're a victim, so they'll always be a victim.
0: Absolutely, and, and also when you said disempowering, my concern with if you do change the date for Australia Day, it will reinforce the myth that someone was suffering because of the date, the day. I think, gee, the government have changed the day. I really must have been suffering or else I wouldn't have changed the day. And clearly, Australia Day is not the cause of suffering for Aboriginal people because there's many, many who don't suffer because of it. They, in fact, celebrate the day. And first, something I should state up front too is one of the problems when you just have this dichotomy of Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal and those who are Aboriginal are sort of seen as being the same that's a big mistake because there's huge diversity i mean you've got people like me look you know lead a fairly, fairly reasonable life and as we said the the other end of town those people who are suffering um and those who are suffering are what i would call legitimate victims um or you know definitely in in need of a hand up and we've got to be careful not to lump all aboriginal people into that victim camp Because you're Aboriginal, you must be a victim, you're a victim of colonisation, blah, 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 which is just nonsense. Um, So I just want to make it very clear that yes, there are some legitimate victims who are Aboriginal and they're the ones we should be helping. The ones who claim they are a victim of Australia Day and white oppression, etc., etc., no, they are not victims. They just pretend, want to be victims.
1: Do you think that the Black Lives Matter kind of ideology, critical race theory is is that filtering through into Australia now and, and, and does it help or or hinder to deal with um, these challenges
0: yeah well uh, it 's more than filtered down i mean when you 've got um, if we just look at the Black Lives Matter uh, movement again it was kind of uh, brought into Australia um, sort of built on that myth of Excess deaths, Aboriginal deaths in custody where it was wrongly assumed that an Aboriginal person in custody was more likely to die Uh, and we know that's not the case. I don't need to, don't want to keep hammering this but you know most of us know now an Aboriginal person in custody is less likely to die than a non-Aboriginal person in custody and certainly they are over incarcerated and and, um, you know there's no disagreement there and that's something we should be Addressing, but to conflate it with deaths I think is very misleading, and then to jump on the BLM bandwagon is very damaging um, because it just, you know, again, it just feeds into this narrative of racist Australia, which the victim brigade love. And, you know, the sad reality is, and this is the message people don't want to hear, that Aboriginal people are far more likely to be hurt by, spat on and harmed in a serious way by other aboriginal people is
1: that right
0: yeah so you know when we look at the the, the rates of homicide uh for aboriginal people as uh, both perpetrators and victims they're much higher than that for the um the general population
1: so much better to to deal with crime as crime regardless of yeah that. yeah who's responsible yeah exactly and who's a victim
0: yeah and you know don't Exaggerate the narrative to to be consistent with one's ideology, you know yes you know certainly there's there's pockets of racism in Australia, but uh its impact on indigenous people is you know fairly minimum uh, when you look at the problems we spoke about before about you know locational disadvantage, keeping them separate from the services we take f- for granted, and also the the harm they commit on each other and You know, it's not rocket science to see that once you have a community where adults are working, kids are in school, the people are well nourished, they've got a good roof over their head, uh, crime and abuse will diminish very, very quickly. You know, people then feel secure and normal.
1: Yeah, because I think it's a mistake to look at these as quote unquote indigenous issues, indigenous problems.
0: Absolutely. And look, a, a mate of mine said it to me one day, he said, you know, you put a 1,000 white guys in the middle of nowhere with no jobs and you're going to have problems. You know, if, if there's a, a black angle to this, if you like, it's the fact that you've got these privileged voices that are being very quiet about their country cousins um, and blaming colonisation and that sort of thing. That's what's yeah. keeping them down.
1: But, you know, long-term unemployment is correlated with poor health outcomes, it's correlated with family violence... Is correlated with uh, poor outcomes for children and that applies wherever you are, right? It, it, whether you're, you're white, Aboriginal, whether you're you know, an Indigenous American, whether you're a Palestinian, those things go together.
0: Absolutely. And it's generational.
1: Yeah. So that, that you fix that first and then... And, then
0: and again, uh, look at most of these loud voices. They generally have jobs, good jobs. And a good education. And, uh, you know, good on them. I, um, I wouldn't want to take that away from them. But I would just say, you know, look at what has been the key to your success and then look about how we can replicate that success in other Indigenous people who are not doing so well.
1: These loud voices uh, you talk about, they sound very much to me like people in other contexts we'd call the elite. Uh, we, we get yeah. lots of loud voices these days. Uh, the laptop class—I like to call them people—who mm. go onto Twitter and um, generally educated people—they yeah. uh, think that they're a little bit smarter than everybody else. In fact, they think they're a good deal smarter than everybody else, and they think they have the right to run our affairs. Uh, do you identify? Do you see that too within the Aboriginal community? You've got that same divide in this. Very
0: much so. Um, yes, they're privileged, and that in in and of itself is not a problem. But use that privilege for good, rather than building yourself a little empire fueled by hate uh, and keeping the country divided. Instead, use your voice, your privilege, your position, and your platform for addressing where disadvantage I- disadvantage is greatest. You know, and look at you know what are the real causes, not this fabricated racism and evils of Australia Day um, or you know, absence of a treaty or absence of a parliamentary voice or whatever. I mean, these squeaky wheels, they're doing well without the parliamentary voice, without the treaty. Uh, let's do what works. And then after we've done that, if you want to look at the the voice and the treaty and those things, that's fine. Look at that then. But let's do what works
1: now. So you, do you see some merit then in, in pursuing discussions about a treaty? Yeah, look. And what would that treaty look like?
0: Again, I personally, I haven't dismissed it totally, but I'm not in support of it because I've never had anyone be able to explain to me how it might help Aboriginal people. And again, if you look at those ones, those people who are pushing it most, they seem to be leading a good life. They know where their next meal is coming from. Well, how about you tell your poorer cousins your secret for success what it is that it has enabled you to have a a good house to live in and know where your next meal is coming from. You've done it without a treaty. You've done it without a parliamentary voice. So again, I'm not dismissing it, but I'm just saying um, it would seem that there are other solutions more apparent, and that's what we should be focusing on.
1: So about this idea of an Aboriginal voice, a voice to Parliament they talk about, enshrining the Constitution and so forth, uh, it would be 51 years this August since Neville Bonner became the first Aboriginal voice to be heard in Parliament. He was uh, chosen as a Senator for Queensland uh, and was a an admirable, uh, admirable advocate for his people and his cause for humanity in general. And since then, of course, there, there are many other uh, Aboriginal representatives in both houses, there are now. Isn't that enough? I mean, where where, where does this idea of a separate voice come from? And I'm genuinely genuinely, uh, uncertain about this because I respect the people, the integrity of many of the people that are arguing for this extra voice in Parliament or voice to Parliament, but I don't quite see how it fits in with everything else.
0: I think it comes back to what I was saying before. If we're honest with ourselves, we know what has to be done, We know that it's a bit of hard work, but some people shy away from the hard work and would prefer to look for a a silver bullet. And the voice and treaty are to these people, those silver magical bullets that will fix everything. Um, you know, it was assumed that the apology would make a, and I wasn't opposed to the apology, Rudd's apology. I just said it's not going to make a difference and it didn't. we, we've got a, an Indigenous man who's the Minister for Indigenous Affairs or Indigenous People, whatever it's called. Um, and I'm not knocking Mr Wyatt at all because I think it's a tough job um, no matter who's doing it. But the point is it, didn't, it hasn't sort of made a big difference. And again, that's no reflection on Mr Wyatt. It's a reflection on the ideology that, oh, okay, if we just have an Indigenous person doing this job, uh, things will be fixed. And so, you know, first, it's a convenient distraction from doing the hard work, um, which we've, we've spoken about. And uh, Stan Grant has spoken about this before, you yeah. know, where he's spoken about in remote communities. Um, if there's no work there, you've got to do what his father did, where you move the family to where the work is. And Stan says so of himself, that he's been very privileged. He's got a good education that's taken him around the world. The other thing too is uh, there's this um, myth that Aboriginal people are so vastly different to non-aboriginal people, which is just absolute nonsense mm-hmm. um, and then, you know even when you're talking about you know I've been in many remote communities uh, where the kids and the adults are as black as this table, and you just get on well with if you if you just smile they just treat you as a mate as if you've known them for so long and they, don't, they really don't care about the colour of your skin um, and, you know, we, we have the same sense of humour we have the same problems, we have the same laughs and, you know, all that sort of thing um, so you've got those who, who insist that the differences are so vast and therefore you've got to have Aboriginal solutions for Aboriginal people Um, And, you know, I I have no problem with Indigenous people working in uh, Indigenous organisations or Indigenous-specific positions uh, if they're providing quality services and that sort of thing. But there's plenty of white people who also offer uh, quality services as well. Um, So, yeah, don't accentuate the differences, uh, especially when they're not there to begin with. Um, And, you know, we we have a government and, you know, again, those who are shouting out loudest for the voice, they know where the next meal is coming from. They're doing well.
1: Yeah, well, you and I would have been brought up as children in an era where we were taught that um, the colour of a person's skin was almost the least important thing about them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I I grew up in multicultural Britain and and, um, that was instilled in us basically as good manners from children and we, we we took that on board and it was never in my my own recollection an issue but but now of course we've gone the reverse they're saying well it's, it is the most important thing it is a defining thing and I think this comes from critical race theory doesn't yeah. it if, if you it's black versus white if you're if you're white you're an oppressor if you're black you're a victim this is extremely dangerous it seems to me we keep yeah. And
0: if I can make a snide remark, if you, it's interesting to look at the color of the skin of those who are claiming it the most, you know, shouting the loudest that the color of the skins, you know, the defining feature, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Um, But you know, come come back to Martin Luther King's vision, you know, judge people by the content of their their character. Mm. Um, y- you know, yes, certainly there was a time um, in this nation's history like when my father joined the police force before I was born, uh, where there was racism, you know, people saw the colour of his skin um, and some opposed him uh, and there would have been some who dad won them over by the content of his character Mm. and the content of his character was instilled in him by his parents, his Aboriginal parents. And of course, there still would have been a few jerks who, who saw him as black and wanted nothing to do with him. But you get one of those in every crowd anyway, uh, even in you know, 2022. Uh, but you know, we, we live in a day and age where, especially you know, in the coastal towns here in Australia, it's a very multicultural um, place where you see a rainbow of people.
1: So to look to the future, are you optimistic that we can get through this nasty period of critical race theory of... A, 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 essentially a very divided, polarised debate. Can we get beyond that? Can we actually get to focus on the things that draw us together, a common humanity, our common values?
0: Okay, difficult question. I think that element that we spoke about, uh, it's, it's not going to go away, but I am optimistic that we can make progress in spite of it. Okay, so I've kind of given a compromise kind of thing. Uh, So we're not going to get rid of the idiots who, you know, shout racism and claim that they're oppressed um, by anything white. They will always be there. They'll always be very present. But I think there are enough good Aussies, um, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous, who are making this country a better country in spite of the idiots. Does that answer your question?
1: Yeah, the other thing I'd like to... And it
0: will be slow. It will be slow.
1: Yeah, of course. I can share my thoughts for a moment. I think we, we need to work a lot harder in trying to work out what those common values are that Australians share. We can start with mateship and egalitarianism and, and not having tickets on yourself. You know, these are things that seem to be a common across indigenous communities and non-indigenous communities yeah, so it's
0: not too hard i think you started off by saying it's hard I, I don't think it is hard uh what those commonalities are and as i said before before we we often laugh the same um yeah uh, we, we cry at the same things the parents want good things for their kids it's just that in the urban areas there's more opportunity for those things so we just want to make sure that those who lack the opportunity have the same opportunity because they they basically have the same goals and aspirations uh, where they just want um, healthy, safe lives. They want purpose. And that often boils down to, not always, but jobs. You know, jobs give a person a sense of purpose where you're contributing to those around you and also at the same time receiving uh, payment in order to be able to provide for yourself and your family. Um, and, you know, just engage in... Normal everyday activities, you know, joining clubs together, going for walks together, playing sports together, um, where colour is not the identifying issue. And, you know, having said that, I don't mind if occasionally there's some sort of um, indigenous football team or, or something like that. that that's yeah. fine. That um, you know, that's on the edge. Um, but mainstream life, um, where we just see each other as equals you know, and, and the same.
1: Anthony Dillon, thank you very much for joining the Water Cooler Conversation.
0: Thank you, Nick. It's been a pleasure.
1: You've been listening to another Water Cooler Conversation coming to you from the Menzies Research Centre. If you'd like to support this great free content and keep it free, then why not subscribe to the Menzies Research Centre from just $10 a month? Go to www.menziesrc.org. I'm Nick Cater for the Menzies Research Centre. Thank you for listening.